0: listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law and with me, remotely, Paul Doroshenko.
1: And we're remote again, despite the fact that we actually have an office.
0: We're all Maybe remote. this is the
1: last time that we'll be remote for a while, because uh, you're on the island,
0: and you'll be back. Yes, I'm on the island, because after all the years of COVID, finally we get to get our family together to have a celebration of life for my grandmother.
1: Well, we're doing something similar this weekend. Um, the um, for another family member myself so kind of kind of a gloomy weekend.
0: I know so if we seem kind of sad in the podcast it might be because we are.
1: Well we'll start off October having uh having celebrated the lives of two people who were important to us.
0: There you go that's got to count for something yeah. but we should get to the best part. Which, which is? The content of the podcast.
1: But a good and podcast, lots of stuff to talk about. We started talking about it a couple of days ago. I thought we should have recorded the podcast right then. When? When we? When you mentioned these cases?
0: Oh, well, you you mean the cases for yeah. how an intersection camera ticket turned into criminal charges for contempt of court? Those mm-hmm. cases.
1: Yeah. Yeah pretty entertaining, you should read an excerpt, Kyla, because your dramatic reading was pretty good.
0: Very, very entertaining. So the cases are Regina and Hardy. There's two of them, 2022 BCPC-189 and 2022 BCPC-190. And in the first one, 189, uh, the court doesn't really talk about any of what happened the court talks about the defense that Mr. Hardy wanted to bring to his intersection enforcement camera ticket, a ticket that has just a fine and no other consequences associated to it, that um, essentially Mr. Hardy wanted to say that he could not be governed by the courts because he is not a citizen of canada he is not a person as canadian law defines it but instead a natural person with a a sovereign citizen on the land also known as a freeman on the land or a detaxer uh yeah those people yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah so we have to deal with them in court every once in a while i mean you and i don't have to deal with them court has to deal with them We're just usually sitting there waiting, wondering when the court's going to shut down their batshit crazy arguments.
0: Yes. And uh, the courts have continuously shut down these batshit crazy arguments to the extent that um, essentially the court has characterized these as organized pseudo-legal commercial arguments, um, which are uh, consistently rejected. And at paragraph one of the first judgment, uh, the court refers to these, um, these sort of history of the cases that have dealt with this and then says, what that means is that superior courts have said that I may and should summarily dismiss these kinds of arguments. And by summarily dismiss, that means not waste the taxpayers' money, the court's time, your time, the prosecutor's time, the court clerk's time, or anyone else's time with an argument that has zero chance of success.
1: Yep. That's great. I and love it. The Judge Patterson <laughs> sitting, where is it? In, in Prince Rupert or Prince George?
0: Prince Rupert. And the end of the first judgment, paragraph seven, is also brilliant. It says, so I will not be filing the documents that you presented in this trial. I'm dismissing any kind of pseudo-legal argument, regardless of what title you or anyone else may put on it. And I'm going to invite the prosecution to begin their case. If they can prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt, then there will be a conviction. If they cannot prove it, there will be an acquittal. That is how our system works in Canada. And a lonely provincial court judge in Prince Rupert, British Columbia, is not going to go against all the precedent that tells him what he needs to do. So, what does Cameron Hardy do as a result of this? Does he do what a normal person would do, Paul?
1: No, of course not, because he's, you know, deeply indoctrinated himself in this stupidity.
0: Yes. Instead, he continues to insist that the court entertain these arguments, including insisting that he not be called Cameron Hardy because that's the name that's been forced upon him by the state. But instead, a man known as Cameron Hardy. (laughs) Well, yeah. As as the trial progresses, he just continues to shout out his pseudo-legal nonsense babble and interrupt the proceedings the whole time to the point that he pisses off the judge so much. I have never seen a a judgment from a, a judge where their like, absolute pissed-offness is so readily apparent. It's beautiful.
1: Well, it's beautiful, but give some of your reading of it and then let's discuss that.
0: Yes, well, let's uh, let's start with paragraph one of the second judgment. I begin the afternoon by reviewing the conduct earlier today of Cameron Hardy, a man known as Cameron Hardy, and I will now explain to Cameron Hardy, a man known as Cameron Hardy, of the consequences to Cameron Hardy, a man known as Cameron Hardy, if he repeats the behavior.
1: <laughs> That's the start. It That's- continues that way.
0: He continues. Every reference to him is Cameron Hardy, a man known as Cameron Hardy. And it's obviously done intentionally to point out how stupid the argument and the insistence is. Well,
1: that's in- insulting him because of his stupid argument. And he's got it coming. Yeah. Um, It's pretty unusual. And I was thinking about it afterward. And I A lot of people would think that that's inappropriate. A lot of people would say that's not the way to do it. and This is our justice system and so forth. And you shouldn't be mocking litigants that way, um, even if they come in with stupid arguments. But you know what? Not me. I'm not criticizing him. Um,
0: Sit and shut up is what I would say. Yeah. So they essentially, his interruptions got to the point that the judge in this judgment basically had found him in contempt Of court sent him off to jail and he spent the afternoon, the lunch break basically in the jail cells. And then court reconvened in the afternoon and he apologized, but then started into the pseudo legal psychobabble again. And the judge was like, That's enough. If you don't, you know, if you don't cut this out now, you're going to go watch your trial over a video link from the jail cell. And I'm going to put you on mute the whole time. And if you need to talk to a lawyer, that's the only time you're going be permitted to talk in private to a lawyer. But otherwise, you're going to sit there and I'm going to force you to shut up. I
1: think that that is great. That was my favorite part of it.
0: Yep. Um, yeah, Paragraph 12. The cells of this courthouse are the only location that will permit the required levels of security over Cameron Hardy, a man known as Cameron Hardy, and in the courtroom. Cameron Hardy, a man known as Cameron Hardy, will be linked in by closed circuit TV. The court will have a mute button that will be activated by the court so that the court, court staff, the prosecutor, or any members of the public and witnesses cannot hear Cameron Hardy, a man known as Cameron Hardy, if he wishes to engage in a rant. It is entirely up to Cameron Hardy, a man known as Cameron Hardy, if he wants to participate in the process here and watch the witnesses as the trial proceeds in an orderly, respectful fashion, free of any interruption or improper action by Cameron Hardy, a man known as Cameron Hardy.
1: Uh, Well, um, you could tell the judge is certainly pissed off uh, using that phrase, but uh, he was throwing it right back at him because that's what the guy was using. And if he wanted to be addressed in a certain manner, then he got addressed in that manner. But those stupid legal arguments are quasi fake, whatever they are. They're referred to as they're just bullshit made up crap that these, uh, these free people of the land, free men of the land have developed over the last couple of decades. Um, anyway, the, uh, it's basically the same people who are in Ottawa. who, uh, you know, laid siege to our capital. Um, That sort of thinking.
0: Yep, exactly.
1: It doesn't get to the bottom of anything.
0: So, you know, a lot of very technical legal arguments like that are actually grounded in nonsense. But, Paul, there are very technical legal arguments that if you started to articulate them to the average person would sound like they're a bunch of nonsense. Like
1: No, yeah, that's true. That's true. Fair enough.
0: I'm, I'm transitioning here.
1: Are you? Go ahead.
0: Like, for example, what the definition of a road or a highway is. Now, you might think, I know what a road is, for I have driven upon a road. It is a paved or gravel passageway for cars. But, Paul, it's not that simple.
1: I know it's not that simple because I've had to make these arguments. A parking lot, a parking lot with a gate, uh, a, a driveway, the edge of somebody's driveway where it's still a culvert and maybe part of the city property or the township's property.
0: A drive-through, um, the ferry a, terminal lineup,
1: a, exactly.
0: <laughs> well,
1: uh, the 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 uh, the border, the border, uh, the you know, all sorts of different the the parking lot of the police station, which is only by invite. Mm -hmm. Um, All sorts of things. (laughs) We've had to deal with that before. And each time I'm like, okay. But. Is this where this forestry service road meets this subdivision, which is a road and a highway. But.
0: But did you also know that depending upon the context, a road might be a road but also not a road at the same time. It's literally Schrodinger's Road.
1: Okay. So what's the context that would permit that?
0: So this is a thing that confuses a lot of people, and it's driving well prohibited. Mm. Because you can be charged with driving well prohibited under a provincial statute, the Motor Vehicle Act. You have to be operating a motor vehicle on a highway or industrial road in the province of British Columbia, and you can be charged. Yes. You can also be charged criminally with driving well prohibited or operation well prohibited when you are operating or in care and control of because operation includes care and control for the purposes of the criminal code a motor vehicle on a highway and that would apply if you were prohibited by virtue of an order made by the court pursuant to a criminal conviction or by a statutory consequence under a provincial statute that flows from your conviction
1: which is something new since 2018. That's a four-year-old.
0: No, 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 no. It used to be that way, but they never charged it that way before. They would always charge it under 232 of the MDA. Well, yeah.
1: well, I looked at the change there, and I thought that it was new. But in any event, the way that it was that it was was changed appeared to me to capture more than I recall. But again,
0: but this is even though you could be charged with the same offense as far as like the description of the offense, operation well prohibited. Yes, under a provincial statute or under the criminal code, and even though you could be, you could face one or both of those charges. Putting aside the pineapple principle, one or both of those charges for the same underlying driving prohibition, the road that you're on may dictate whether or not you can be convicted.
1: For sure, guaranteed.
0: The road, like, the and so this is the case of um, Halliday. It's a decision uh, out of Campbell River, argued by Doug Marion, very good lawyer in Campbell River. Nice guy, too. um, Who's dealing with Mr. Halliday, who's driving on what is essentially a road at the end of Sullivan Road in Sayward, B.C. Um, It intersects with Highway 19, but the very end of the road is basically a cul-de-sac that is really only used for the purposes of entering into one of the residences that's located at the end of the road. Yeah. And it's like a gravel part part of the road. It's not the paved part. And he argued that this was a private road, and so he wasn't subject to the driving prohibition. And the court gets into this really detailed analysis of what constitutes a highway in the various statutes. So the criminal code refers to a public place um, saying a prohibition order in respect of a motor vehicle applies, uh, this is 320.81 of the criminal code, applies only to its operation on a street, road, or highway, or in any other public place. And the criminal code defines highway As uh, a road to which the public has the right of access and includes bridges over which or tunnels through which a road passes, which is interesting because in the Motor Vehicle Act, the definition of highway is every road, street, lane or right of way designed or intended for use by the general public for the passage of vehicles and every private place or passageway to which the public for the purposes of parking or servicing vehicles has access or is invited. And so then the question becomes, aren't those the same definition, public access? But no, public access is meant differently in the two pieces of legislation. So the Motor Vehicle Act has been interpreted in a number of cases um, to refer to uh, public access, meaning um, access intended um, for the general public, that it is a matter of public, as a matter of fact, the public travels on the road unmolested by uh, the owner, um, that there's actual walking or driving on the roadway. Um, and paragraph 43 in, in um, the Halliday case, the court says that um, there was uh, a driveway that was only accessible from a road, there was no gate, And that portion did not include, was not a highway, even though there was access to it, because otherwise the definition would include virtually all private driveways, save those with gates or similar obstructions. And then uh, the issue remains whether the driveway passageway was a passageway to which the public, for the purpose of parking or servicing vehicles, has access or is invited. And there's a ton of explanation of various cases where certain things are concluded to be highways or not highways within the Motor Vehicle Act. But the criminal code and its definition of highway had not been judicially interpreted as broadly as the BC Motor Vehicle Act.
1: Well, is one public and one general public? And does that have any difference? Yes. Because I know the general public is different from the public,
0: yes. you would think. Yes. So this is what the judge says at paragraph 54. Um, the case authorities differentiate between general public, referred to in Section Order. 1 Motor Act and public in Section 1C. The term highway in Section 1 states uh, that highway includes the listed definition. The criminal code refers to a highway to which the public has the right of access. And he says that under the Motor Vehicle Act, Sullivan Road is not necessarily a highway just because the residents in the area use Sullivan Road to access their homes, because in Motor Vehicle Act cases, the Crown has to establish that it was designed or intended for or used by the general public. For the passage of vehicles. So, if the only people that go down that road are people who live there or the guests of people who live there, that's not designed or intended to be used by the general public. It's only designed or intended to be used by the people that live there
1: or visit there.
0: But because the criminal code does not sort of refer to the general public, the public yeah. term is interpreted much more broadly. And it's whether the public has a right to access it. Yeah, so it's, it's this, like, use of the term public and the def- different definition. And the um, court says, obviously, the people who reside along Sullivan Road certainly have a right of access. The criminal code definition of highway does not define public. If I conclude that the people who live on Sullivan Road are not the public with a right of access... That would result in them not having the protection of a law designed to prevent unlicensed or prohibited drivers from driving on Sullivan Road near their residences. Such drivers would also be uninsured. Such a conclusion would mean that many people who reside on roads in rural areas would also be exposed to unlicensed and uninsured drivers using the roads near their homes. In my view, that would be an unintended result of the legislation. I conclude that whether or not there are other driveways or paths that lead from Sullivan road to the various residences, the people who live along it are members of the public.
1: Certainly when you frame it that way, that they're entitled to the protection of the law Mm -hmm. and they live there, they're the public who are entitled to be protected. That's the purpose of having the definition of a public road as opposed to a private road. Mm -hmm. So there you go. That makes sense to me. Um, the Motor Vehicle Act for whatever reason is narrower and um you know the government can come along and change it. I don't know that it's had a huge impact, the fact that it's narrower. But yeah, so there you go. Another weird thing that I'm gonna have to try and remember next time I have to conduct
0: one of these cases as a I like wrap. Wrapping your head around the fact that the Motor Vehicle Act may have intended for people who live in relatively private areas not to have the same protections as people who live in places that are more publicly accessible. Yeah,
1: that could be. It makes sense, sort I mean,
0: of. In some ways <laughs> it seems to run contrary to the act, but then you think about The fact that there's all sorts of places that you can drive your car that aren't governed by the Act. Like Forest Service roads only have certain sections of the Motor Vehicle Act, but they're roads and they're used and they're governed by provincial legislation. But it's just they're used for different purposes. So the extent of protection necessary to achieve the Motor Vehicle Act's goals of regulating roads and highways is not as significant. And I guess on private roads or private-ish roads, that would also hold true.
1: What happens if it's a road into a religious community or in a religious community?
0: Well, I mean, we look at, we see this in cases involving like roads on reserves, where some roads on reserves are public roads and some roads on reserves are not public roads. Hmm. Mm Hmm.
1: Interesting. All right. Well, you know, I'm going to let you handle those cases when they come in. Thanks. Problem solved.
0: Well, you know what? I'll let you handle this week, Paul. The ridiculous,
1: the ridiculous driver, driver of the <laughs> week. <laughs> week
0: <laughs> me, 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 yes,
1: I was going to do that, and I will do that. I just wanted to mention that I don't know that if we uh, mentioned it last time. The case of Bro went to the uh, Supreme Court of Canada on the fourteenth of this month, and it was reserved. I just noticed that as I'm sitting here on my computer, but I'm going to get to the ridiculous driver of the week now as we. Uh, As we were setting up to record the podcast this week, Kyla had to run out with her dog, Wrigley, um, to let him have a uh, quick break outside before we started. And uh, as we were doing this, I had a Ridiculous Driver of the Week all lined up, but I found a better one. And it relates to a dog. And the headline here is, Man Arrested for Allowing Dog to Drive His Car. So. I don't know if it's the dog is the ridiculous driver or the man, but this was near Jerusalem in Israel. Uh, Happened uh, just recently within the last, uh, let's see, September 7th, it was posted. Um, Police arrested a man who allegedly allowed his dog to drive his car. The fellow had posted a video of the dog driving to social media, according to the police. Another issue is that the vehicle did not have roadworthy certificate. Well, I think obviously it's a bigger issue that he let the dog drive the car. And there is the video there. You can watch it. Uh, it's, um was posted on the Twitter account. Um, guy lets his dog drive the car. Um, and the dog's actually, I mean, maybe the guy's got his hands on the wheel as well. But it sure looks like the dog's paws are on the wheel in the video. Uh, and uh, the windshield wipers are going. I don't know if the dog turned the wipers on first. <laughs> anyway narrow streets of uh jerusalem or near jerusalem and there it is dog driving a car at nighttime. obviously you're not going to try and do that in the day somebody might witness it
0: okay but let me ask you this like if you let your dog drive your car can you in in canadian law like i don't i don't know what jerusalem driving statutes say but can you be charged with dangerous operation because you're not really operating it the dog is
1: uh, or could you be charged with careless driving? You're not driving; the dog is. Uh, I think a court would find some way to convict you. Um,
0: yeah. so, <laughs> I mean, you, you I'd say you
1: may not have care control, subject. but you're responsible for the operation of the vehicle. Uh, and the dog is the extension of you as your property. And it would be like, you know, sitting in the passenger seat and driving would be, would be not showing due care and attention to your duties as a driver yeah driving without due care and attention you're driving sort of your vehicle's moving and you are the one who who set that whole operation into motion i'd have no problem convicting somebody of that
0: yeah okay uh, right.
1: but i don't think you could establish care and control if you're sitting there and you're planning on letting your dog drive and the driver dogs in the driver's seat and you're trying to give him some instructions, okay, Rover, you know, <laughs> you know, put your, put your paw on there and push it up to D what hold if your you- other paw on the brake. Uh, I don't think you're going to be convicted in those circumstances, but in this circumstance at best, the guy's got the dog on his lap and he's, uh, I mean, so he's in, he's in care and, and control, you know, ever since the, uh, the phenomena of Karen's, um, you know, women who are, uh, not just women, but but people who are behaving badly, asking to speak to the manager, or what have you, been recorded on video. Um, and now when I hear the words care and control, I keep thinking Karen control. Um, in any event, the fellow sitting in the driver's seat, I think, with the dog on his lap.
0: Well, I mean, I don't know. I think I think there would be a real problem there. And unless you killed somebody, they probably would not be able to succeed in a prosecution. But I also think...
1: Well, then it'd be criminal negligence causing death, so...
0: Yes, and that for sure would be made out. But I also think that you do not want to be the lawyer to litigate whether letting your dog drive absolves you of criminal responsibility for driving offenses
1: um the other thing is what if the dog drives is fine yeah what if you got a like well-trained dog operates that motor vehicle no problem yeah what was it they, they had fish driving a fishbowl a little while ago they, you know so i don't know maybe dogs can be taught to drive
0: yeah that's possible too well, there you well
1: go. don't try it with your dog, Kyla. Yeah,
0: don't, don't, My don't.
1: recommendation is don't try this except with a simulator.
0: Don't try it at home. That's uh, that's the lesson on the podcast today. Uh, <laughs> don't try pseudo-legal nonsense arguments. Don't try to argue that a place that the public is allowed to drive is not a highway if you're charged with a prohibited driving offense under the criminal code. And don't try and let your dog drive
1: exactly okay well that's it
0: yes. if you have a driving law related issue that you need to know whether you should do or don't do give us a call at 604-685-8889 or find us online at vancouvercriminallaw.com and tune in next week for another exciting episode of driving law